We're continuing in our series in the book of Psalms, and when we open up the book of Psalms, there is a, a certain recurring pattern that we see there, especially in the Psalms of David, but in other Psalms as well. And it was a pattern in David's life. It was common to him. It was common to generations after him, and it's still common in the lives of believers like us today. And I want to put this on the screen and show you what I'm talking about. This is the pattern we're going to look at today. There it is. Good. We find ourselves in life in some sort of trouble. We consider ways to get ourselves out of it. Eventually, we cry out to the Lord for help. Then we wait on him to respond. In his timing, he acts on our behalf, and that leads us to trust in him more. And then we enter into a greater and more genuine level of worship because of that, and our testimony of praise then leads others in the body to be encouraged and built up along with us. And that's the pattern we're about to see in our psalm for this morning. And listen, we're all on some form of that journey. It may look different for you than it does for me, but the pattern is certainly recognizable because this is a common way that God sovereignly works through our lives to grow us and to transform us and to make us more like his son. So as we dive in this morning, what I want you to do is not just analyze this psalm from the perspective of David's life, but try to find your life in it as well as we walk through it together. So grab your Bibles. If you're not there already, I'll put that back up in a second. Let's go to Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is categorized by Hebrew scholars in several different ways. Some say it's a thanksgiving psalm. Others would put it in the category of a hymn of praise. And then as we'll see a little bit later, it also has a messianic uh, aspect to it as well. So it's sort of a hybrid psalm in that you can see many different categories in it. Now, like some of the psalms we've been analyzing recently, there is no historical background given to us. Nothing, nothing that ties the words in the psalm to uh, David's life. All we know for sure is that David found himself in a helpless and hopeless situation, and he absolutely needed the Lord's help in order to escape. But as we'll see a little bit later, the uncertainty of the historical background does leave the door open to the possibility that as David writes, again, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, that there are potentially multiple layers of meaning to this text, and I'll explain that as we go along. So we're going to concentrate on just the first 10 verses of this psalm, and again, as we read, watch for the pattern that I described earlier. Psalm 40, for the choir director, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. 
I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Now, I'm going to put that back up on the screen because that, again, is going to be sort of our outline as we walk through this this morning. But let's start with that first aspect, that trouble. Let's look at the pit that David describes in verse 2. Again, we don't know exactly what David was talking about when he spoke of being stuck in a miry pit, but um, hopefully some images come to mind when you hear those terms, some, something that pops up in your brain that helps you understand what he was going through and feeling. And by the way, since we don't often use the word miry in our, in our daily life, anybody use that word this week? Probably not. Uh, I did do a check on dictionary.com, and very simply, it means some combination of swampy and muddy. Hmm, sounds lovely. So imagine being desperately trapped in a deep well where the bottom that you're standing in is feet deep in this swampy mud, and the walls of the well are also filled with moisture and mud. And there's no one around to help. You are hopelessly trapped. There's no way to dig yourself out. There's no way to climb out because not only are your feet slipping around, you have no foothold below your feet and you have absolutely nothing to grab onto on the sides of the walls. And with every movement that you take, you're only making it worse. You're sinking deeper and deeper into the mud. It's terrifying, isn't it? To think you would be all alone in that situation with no escape. Now look at the specific language David uses here. He calls it a a pit of destruction. So I think the reason for that is he's describing more than just, oh, this is an uncomfortable place. This is an issue of dying and death. This is an issue of life and death. And this is not unheard of in Scripture. We have a description of this type of thing in Jeremiah 38. Do you remember when King Zedekiah was just sick of the prophet Jeremiah? Jeremiah is walking around the land and saying, you're going to go to Babylon, you're going into exile. And Zedekiah says, I I want this guy gone. The the land cannot handle his words. He wants to get rid of him. So the text says in Jeremiah 38, they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son. And they let him down with ropes, it says. Now, a cistern uh, is is sort of an ancient, it was a pit that ancient people would dig out that would then collect rainwater for later use. So it's like a well, it's like an ancient well. And it says, Now, in the cistern, there was no water, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. And Jeremiah was left there to die a slow, agonizing death. That was Zedekiah's plan. Let him die of exposure. Let him die of starvation until God came to his rescue. God worked through a servant of the king to rescue Jeremiah from the pit. And the point of the language here in Psalm 40 is to describe something similar. David is powerless to save himself here absolutely powerless to escape. He is facing death, and the only thing he can do is hope for somebody outside of himself to come and rescue him. Now, I doubt anybody in this room is going to fall into a well here in Santa Clarita, unless you live out in the hinterland somewhere, right? You're not going to, and nobody's going to throw you into a cistern, I don't think. But we all find ourselves in situations, bridge the gap now, where we feel trapped in our circumstances, And we cannot seem to, we look at it and we go, I don't see a way out of this. And that's an awful feeling, isn't it? Now, sometimes we've put ourselves in that that pit, haven't we? By our sin and by our poor choices. 
And we can still feel trapped, but we put ourselves there. We've, we've jumped into the well, right? But then other times it's come upon us because of trouble from the outside. People have brought this into our lives. So you can think of, I'm sure you can think of a million possibilities here. Maybe you are facing some type of life-threatening health issue and you feel like you're in a pit of destruction. Your closest friend decides to up and move away to another part of the country and it leaves you with this gaping relational hole in your life and you just feel empty. You've lost your job and you can't find another one and now you're on the verge of economic collapse and you look at your, your, your bank statement and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I feel trapped. You're betrayed by your spouse and suddenly you find yourself alone. How am I going to make it through life alone? Your teenage child deconstructs and just walks away from the faith, walks away from everything that you have taught him or her. And you feel alone in that. You have a job that requires so much of your time and energy that you feel trapped by it. I don't know what to do. I need this job, but it's killing me. It's, it's destroying my home life. Or you're one of those moms who are you're struggling just to manage with your kids and there's constant problems and you're at a breaking point because you just don't know how you're going to be able to figure it all out. Or maybe you're just a student and you've, you've signed up for so many classes and the expectations from your parents are so high that you're like, I feel trapped by this. There's so many things, right, where we get to this place where we're like, I can't go on anymore. I can't keep doing this and I don't see how I can get myself out of it. This is sort of what David is explaining here. Times in life when you're legitimately trapped and you can look around and you just don't see an escape route, right? And sometimes people that profess to know Christ, at least they know in their heads, in their minds, intellectually, they understand that God is here. He hasn't abandoned them. He cares for them. In that pressure cooker of life where you panic a little bit, you get anxious because you don't see the escape route, they can stumble badly. They can stumble badly in this time of trial. And so this is why we need to talk about this this morning. This is why this psalm is so good for us and so practical, because we have to know in advance what to do when we find ourselves in that pit, right? We don't want to just be reactive. We want to be proactive to talk about, okay, when the next thing comes into my life and I feel like I'm in a pit, what am I going to do? Now, before we go on, let's talk about the potential here for multiple layers. David appears to be describing a very personal situation in his life, but the language does open the door for some other thoughts as well. I explained last week, we always have to remember when we read David's words that he is the anointed king of Israel. And in the ancient Old Testament context, the king represented more than just himself. A king in that ancient Near East represented his gods, represented his, his nation as a whole. So David is, as he's writing, is a representative of Yahweh, of God's chosen people, of the land itself. So although we're going to look at the personal aspect today, scholars look at Psalm 40 and also see a national perspective. And that's very possible. That David's talking about something that has come upon Israel as a country, something that threatens their very existence. And so the deliverance that Yahweh brings is national as well. That God comes to save not just his chosen king, but his chosen people and his chosen kingdom. And that's entirely possible. The other layer that we can possibly see here is that David is actually talking about salvation. He's talking about salvation, that he's using this picture of this pit as the picture of a person who is lost and separated from God and cannot find his way to salvation. 
He needs God to come from the outside and to save him, right? In that motif, the deliverance is not physical, it's spiritual, a person being lifted out of this pit and into a saving relationship with the Lord. That's possible as well. So there's the, because we don't have the historical background, there's that potential for multiple layers of meaning. But we're going to stick with the personal because it's the most obvious and most literal, but just have those things in your, the back of your mind, and we'll come back to that salvation one in just a little bit. Okay, question. Let's go back to the personal aspect. When you're in a pit, what should you do? Verse 1. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. That's easy. Let's pray and go home. What you can't see in the English translation is the Hebrew here. It's stating this course of action in the most emphatic terms possible. In fact, David doubles up on the word waited. He literally writes in the Hebrew, waiting, I waited for Yahweh. It's emphatic. He's trying to tell you, I I diligently waited, I earnestly waited, I patiently waited, I perseveringly waited. In other words, he really, really waited, which means he didn't panic in the midst of these circumstances. And that's, that's important for us, right? He didn't get anxious about it. He didn't go into fear. He held fast on this course of action. I am going to wait upon the Lord. And I know waiting is hard. Didn't we touch on it last week a little bit about this idea of waiting? I mentioned, you know, if you've ever been to the emergency room at Henry Mayo Hospital and, it's, and the waiting room is filled, it's the worst. I don't know how long it was, hon. Like, I, I had a kidney stone. And I went to the emergency room. And, it w- and every time I go there, it's packed. And I don't understand the system. Who's getting called in? All I know is I am writhing in pain. I am making noises in the waiting room that shouldn't be made. And people with the sniffles seem to be getting called in. Mm, it's excruciating. Waiting is hard. But waiting on the Lord is a crucial part of being a faithful Christian. We've got to learn this, right? It requires humility. It requires trust. And it requires absolute trust in something that we talk about all the time here, and that is the sovereign hand of God. Do we really trust in his sovereignty, or do we just talk about it? To wait on the Lord means you trust that he is sovereign over all things. It requires knowing and trusting that he's not left you, that he's not forsaken you, that he will come to your need at the right time according to his vision, which is Let's just say it, well beyond ours, right? It's not going to always happen in our timing because we have tunnel vision. We say, well, God should come now. And God says, no, I see just a little bit wider than you do. And for us to rest in that and say, okay, God, that promise that you will come to my aid is sufficient for me. We have to realize and accept that sometimes he's not going to come and help us until we come to the end of our own resources and we finally cry out to him and say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this. Now look at verse 4. David says, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud or to those who lapse or swerve into falsehood. And I think the better translation of that last phrase is to those who run after lies. Friends, look at this and seal this truth in your mind and heart. How blessed is the man or woman who, when faced with that, that trouble, being in that pit, makes the Lord alone his or her trust and doesn't run to other sinners to fix the problem. See, when you're in a pit, because we get anxious and we get fearful 
and there's pain, you're always going to find yourself in the grip of this temptation to turn to the wrong things just to get out from under those circumstances. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll grip onto anything right now to get out from under what I'm going through. And you'll want to do that even if it means compromising your faith or turning to shady people to help you, the proud, those who lie. So what David's talking about here is sacrificing your integrity and your testimony in order to escape this pit. It's a real temptation. And I get it. When we're in pain, we just want to get out from under it. My kidney stone, I get it. It's a real tool in the enemy's toolbox as well to whisper in your ear, God's not here. Do you see him? How is he helping you? What are you waiting for? Go fix your problem. You can almost hear the enemy whispering that, right? So, so you go, yeah, that's it. So you go and you create your own plan and you start shading the corners here and there and you start telling lies here and there and you manipulate people and you get out of the jam by your own cleverness, by your own ingenuity. And God says, no, I'm not pleased with that. Now, the teaching here is not that you can't use biblical wisdom to solve a tricky problem. That would act, there'd be nothing wrong with it. That's, that's a wise thing. I'm going to apply biblical principles. I'm going to get wise counsel, and I'm going to fix my problem. That is fine. What this is condemning is ignoring God and turning to the world for advice and taking up pragmatic, sinful techniques in order to escape a difficult situation. So make sure you understand that. We want to wait on the Lord to deliver us in his timing, in his way. And by the way, we have a prime example of this. If you're like, help me, help me see an example. Some of you guys may be familiar with King Asa, who was the king of Judah in the ninth century BC. Now Asa was, Asa was a, a, one of the godly kings of Judah. And early in his reign, he trusted the Lord and the Lord was faithful to him. And, and Asa was one of those guys, he brought godly reforms to Judah. Everything was going well, but towards the end of his reign, he got wobbly. He got wobbly. In 2 Chronicles 16, we learned that he came under a threat from the northern kingdom and he panicked. He didn't see a way to repel this threat. He, he must have looked at the circumstances, looked at that army, looked at his army and said, I'm in real trouble. So what do you do? Again, with your visual eyes, you're like, I can't win this fight. So what do you do? Well, Asa reached out to the pagan king of Aram. And he entered into a treaty with, with unbelievers. And you know what? Here's the interesting thing. It worked. That treaty threatened the northern kingdom so much that they didn't invade. And so Asa must have thought, solve that problem. But was Yahweh pleased? He was not. And so the Bible tells us that God sent a prophet named Hanani to rebuke Asa saying this, because you depended on the king of Aram and have not depended on the Lord your God, therefore you will have wars from now on. And he did. That's what marked the end of his reign. Constant war and great physical suffering. Asa had turned to the world for help. He had panicked. He had lost his trust in the Lord and he didn't wait. It's a good lesson for us. So let's go back to verse 1 now. Let's see what Yahweh does with David. I waited patiently for the Lord, David says, and what did God do? He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. So, so David's in this pit. What does he do? Does he just, does he just sit around? He's like, i got to wait on God now, so I'm just going to sit around and play some video games. I'm just going to catch up on, 
on my, you know, my Netflix shows. Uh, because I, now I have all this time on my hand. I'm just going to wait. And, and if I do that, uh, everything will just work itself out. Is that what he does? When you're stuck in a pit, there is great action to be taken. And you're like, well, hold on a second. You just said wait on the Lord. Yeah, waiting on the Lord is not passive. This, we make this mistake all the time. That does not mean go passive, just start wandering through life and just hope things work out. That is not what David does. Throughout this psalm, David cries out to God repeatedly. He knows that only God can save him, so he's active in his waiting. So put those, put those two words together, active in his waiting. That's important. He's continually imploring the Lord for help. I know we're not going to cover it, but if you look down at verse 13 and again in verse 17, he says, O Lord, rescue me, hurry to help me. You are my help and my deliverer, my God, do not delay. And, and you, we, remember we looked at Psalm 6 many weeks ago. We saw David describing his wrestling in a prayer. He said, I am weary from my groaning. Like he's physically worn out from, from prayer, from actively seeking the face of God. He says, every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. David is not just sitting around playing video games as he waits. He's being active. And I think as modern day worshipers, we fail at that. I'm just... I fail at this, and, I, and you probably do as well, in terms of really being just persevering in prayer. We may think about our situation. We definitely will complain about our situation. But do we, do we seek the face of the Lord with passion and perseverance? We might, oh yeah, we might pray once. Oh, well, I already prayed. That's it. I'm good. But do we drench the places that we pray with our tears? Are we relentless in seeking his face, relentless in asking for help? Or is it possible that we don't really fully trust that God is hearing? Or we don't really fully trust that he will come to our aid, so therefore we don't actually persevere in prayer? We throw up a quickie prayer and go, well, I hope God heard that. Maybe, maybe he'll listen. Maybe he'll come. So I'll go back to my Netflix. And then in verse 5, we see another thing that we ought to be doing as we actively wait. Drop down to verse 5, where David says, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts or plans towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they'd be too numerous to count. So in the midst of our trial, one of the great opportunities we get is, is perhaps some more time to do what? To remember the faithfulness of God. Actively remember and consider the faithfulness of God in the past. And how do we do that? Well, how many of you guys, when you're in a pit, when you're in really tough circumstances, you double down on your time in God's word? That too is actively waiting. Doubling, tripling down on your time in the word. This is when you're in a pit is the time to deeply drink from the scriptures. Because there you can read about the past, about how God has been faithful to servants over generation after generation after generation. And then it, that can give you hope for your situation. But a lot of us, we don't. We actually move away from the word when we're in a pit. Many are your past wonders, Lord. What do you think David would, could have meditated on? What, was he thinking about the Exodus, how God, how, how God brought his people out of slavery? Was you know, was he thinking about Joshua and how God brought his people into the promised land? Meditate on those things. Was he thinking about how the Lord of hosts so often showed up to give Israel 
of victory in battle. Or maybe he was thinking more personally. He was remembering back to that time when he fought a giant. Could you imagine having that in your past? Or when he escaped from King Saul, how God came to his rescue. How much would meditating on those things have helped David to wait actively for the Lord to move? And the same principle applies for us. We all have seen God move. If you are saved here this morning, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have seen God move in your life. Maybe other times as well. Or you've seen, you've seen those around you, friends, family members, where God has showed up and done amazing things, delivered you, delivered your friends, delivered your family. Do you remember those things? That can help you to wait upon the Lord. Let those memories stir up your faith to trust in God's sovereign hand, to say, I don't need to rush this. I don't need to walk into sin in order to solve my problem because I know God is faithful. That's the past. But then David says also, many are your future thoughts for me, your plans. David knew, this is so great, that God's faithfulness in the past, as long as David continued to walk humbly with his God, would show up in faithfulness in the future because God doesn't leave his servants. So many are your things I can think of in the past, and many are your thoughts and plans for me in the future. All I know, God, is that you are good and that you've not abandoned me. That's how we wait upon the Lord. Now, to me, the most stunning part about verse 1 is right there in the middle. It says, he inclined to me. That, is, that by itself is a mind-blowing thing that we need to grasp onto, that the God of the universe bends down, inclines himself to hear us when we pray. Can you imagine? And this is the beginning of a series of divine actions on God's part. It's interesting. Psalm 40 centers around uh, David and how he responds to this pit. But actually, the prime mover in this entire psalm is God. Yahweh is, at this, is the central character of this because God initiates all the actions here. First of all, he looks down and he sees, there's my anointed king. He's in trouble. That's step one. Number two, with great affection and care, God says, you know what? I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to incline myself towards him, come near to my king, and listen. God listens to his people. Take courage in that, friends. When, when you pray, if you're found in Christ, God is listening. Trust in that truth. His eyes are upon those who belong to him. His ears are attentive to our needs. The promise that we have is that God will respond to those who diligently seek him. And then comes the next two divine actions on God's part. Look at verse 2. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. That's the first step. And then he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. Now, again, we don't know exactly what David's talking about here, right? But the language, this pit of destruction, again, means that this is a life and death thing, that David, David pictures himself being lifted up out of Sheol, out of the grave, from this pit. Whatever's going on, this is, this is life and death, and God lifts him up out of both despair and physical death. And as marvelous as that rescue is, it's actually better than that because not only does he get out of the mud and the, and the slipperiness, but his feet are put on a firm platform where he could now stand securely. Listen, I know none of us have experienced this, but if you were stuck, just imagine being stuck for days in a, in a well, a muddy, swampy well, and you never get any firm foothold, and you can't hold on to anything. How good would it feel to suddenly be, to be put on bedrock and to say, I can stand again? 
That's what's going on here. And this is, again, this is what brings us back to this notion that maybe David is also writing about the idea of salvation. Think about this. David says he faces a situation beyond his ability to handle. What is his only hope? To be rescued by someone outside of himself, right? Someone who can free him from the pit. And some people, scholars, look at this and go, this is a picture of sin, right? Because all of humanity is locked in this corruption and guilt and bondage to sin, right? We call that total depravity. And man cannot escape that on his own. We have no means or ability to escape our own sinfulness, just like that pit. And this, this pit is this place of confinement. It's, it's filthy. It's muddy. It's dark. It's damp. It's a place of destruction, what, is that, what, is that, what does that picture conjure up in your mind? It's lostness. It's separation from God. It's a horrible, dark place. But then comes the rescue or the deliverance, and David can do nothing to save himself. God has to lift him out of that pit, and then God has to set him on what? A rock. Could that not be the rock of Christ? Think about that. We were all at one time exactly like that, helpless and hopeless apart from God. But by his grace and mercy, he came to us. We didn't incline ourselves towards him. He came to us and lifted us out of that miry clay, took us out of that lostness and brought us into his family and put our feet on this rock and said, that rock is Jesus Christ. You will stand because I will make you stand. Wow, what a picture, right? So we see, I think, these two parallel tracks, this true story in David's life, but also this greater story of how we are saved. Okay, back to the personal. What do you do when you are in trouble, you cry out to God, he responds, he saves you. What do you do next? You worship. This is the end goal of this psalm, you worship. The response is going to be great joy and great thankfulness, and that ought to express itself in worship in the congregation. That's what David talks about here. Look at verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And notice this again. It's God who's the prime mover. He put the song in my mouth. Again, inability. We, we just, in our own selves, in our own sinfulness, we can't do these things. But God causes them in our life. He puts the song there for us. Now, I know we've already talked about this idea of a new song in this series. It's simply a reference to each time that God moves in our lives and comes to our aid, it gives us a chance to praise him in a new way. It doesn't necessarily have to be a newly composed song. It could be an old song. But because God has moved in a fresh way, we have a fresh perspective on that song. I, I, one of the things I love to see, is, especially you younger folks, you, you sometimes you'll hear about an old song or some old hymn from the 19th century. You sort of roll your eyes like, ah, it's so old, so old-fashioned. But then God moves in your life in a powerful way, and you know what? You find yourself singing that song and going, oh, I get it now. Now I know why that song is still being sung, why it's so powerful. That's part of what it means that God puts a new song in our mouth. It's a fresh perspective on a song that's already been written and, and known for generations, but now you get it because God has moved in your life. Listen, our life of worship should never be static. It should never just stand still. We should be growing in faith, growing in trust, and growing in our worship, our love for worship. 
our love to sing praises to our God because we're constantly experiencing new moves by God where he comes to our aid and where he saves us. Now look at the rest of verse 3 because there's a whole other benefit from David's patient waiting. He says, many will see and fear and will put their trust in the Lord. And if you drop down to verse 9, you see more about this. Guys, this is the public aspect of worship. Verse 9, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. That's the assembly of Israel. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. David says, look, God has been so gracious to me. How can I not sing? How can I not lead the assembly of Israel in praise? Beautiful, isn't it? So there's, there's the two dimensions in worship. First, there's the, the vertical dimension, which is, of course, us before the Lord. But it's this second dimension, the horizontal dimension, which is so often neglected in the church today. Because we have made, in the last, I don't know how many decades, we've made our walk with Jesus so individualistic that it's just, hey, it's just me and God, just me and God, just me and God. It's you and God. It's you and God. No, it's us and God. It is me and God. There is the personal aspect, but it's bigger than that. It's us and God because, because the New Testament has given us this picture of us as an actual body with all these different parts and members. And as one part suffers, we all suffer. And as one part celebrates, we all celebrate. It's us and God. And that's so important and so neglected, I think, and misunderstood. And so as a body, we share everything together. Every Sunday that we gather, there's so much going on in each one of our lives. I, I, wish, I wish we could see like, like above our heads, like all the things that are going on in our lives. As we all walk in and the music starts and Gabe leads us and we're all starting to sing, I wish we could see it all. All the stuff that's coming into the presence of God. Because that's the point, right? I mentioned this in the video I just shot for The Unshakable. We bring all of our thinking, our true thinking about God into worship. We bring all of our affections into worship. And we also bring our physical bodies. We bring all of it to the Lord. And there's so much going on. The question is, have you checked out of the worship time? Have you just said, you know, eh, this is just a tradition. This is what we do. We sing two or three songs and then we get to the, we get to the sermon. Or, or is there something more powerful? Do you see the power of collective worship? Are you aware of what's going on? Do you know your fellow members well enough to where you can enter into corporate worship with them in a very particular way? These are important questions. See, God had rescued David, and David had been changed by it, and he wasn't going to be silent about it. He was going to come, and he was going to be expressive before the assembly of Israel. And here's the cool thing. Israel saw their king. Israel saw their king. They watched him go through a hard time, a pit of destruction. And contrary to human nature, they watched their king humble himself and wait upon the Lord. And then they saw, once he was delivered, how their king worshipped they saw him, and it was real, and it was authentic. And David says that caused many people to fear the Lord and to trust the Lord more because they saw their leader leading and worshiping. And together, the great congregation was built up and strengthened. That's what we do every Sunday. We, we don't go through the music portion just to get to the sermon. We're being built up together. We're being strengthened we're being encouraged. It's what I call the contagious testimony of corporate worship. So when I see you, when I know something's going on in your lives and, 
And, and I know I talk to a lot of you guys when I see you passionately worshiping on Sunday, in spite of the pit that you're in right now, I'm inspired by that, to praise the Lord alongside you and to enter into that pain with you and say, together, guys, let's worship our great God who will deliver us in his time. That's the beauty of knowing one another. And then coming on Sunday and just being aware, not just, hey, it's me and God, me and God. No, it's our brothers and sisters, a body worshiping together. Isn't it awesome that whenever God lifts us out of a pit and he puts a new song in our mouths, that his goal is just not to build us up, but to build the individual up, but to build all of us up in that. Isn't that interesting? So, so you know, I'm not going to point to any one person, but, but <laughs> I almost did. But, but God lifts you out and he says, look, I did this for you, but I did this for all of everybody here so that they would see that I delivered you. And then when you come in on Sunday and you sing praises, they see that as well. And together we're built up in strength. Do you see the picture here? But again, in the modern day church, we've just sort of said, well, that's just a tradition. We just sing a couple songs and we've missed it. We've missed it. Don't view your individual song of praise as the stopping point of God's mercy. He actually wants you and I to sing encouragement and hope into the lives of other people, especially if you're going through the same pit, the same circumstances somebody else has suffered through. Now it really bonds us together, doesn't it? And we lift each other up. Okay, let me close with this. The response that God wants from us goes even beyond just praise and worship. It goes to obedience. And this is the point of verses 6 through 8. We'll close with this, but this is so powerful. Look at verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, Lord. My ears you have opened. What, why do our ears get open? So that we hear better, right? So that we'll listen. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, that is the Torah, it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart. So loosely translated, this is what David is saying here. He says to God, How can I best express my thankfulness to you, Lord? How do I do that? How is it even possible? Have you ever done this? God does a work in your life and, and you're just you don't have the words to express your thankfulness. There's just, there just aren't words for it. So David says, look, in the past, I would have thought that the best thing for me to do would bring you a, a series of offerings to bring animal sacrifices. But now I realize that what you really want from me, way more than the, the animal sacrifices, is an obedient heart that desires to do your will, that delights to do your will. That's really what you want, Lord. That's what he's saying here. In other words, David is affirming in this verse what the prophet Samuel, remember when Samuel rebuked Saul? Right? In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, better than the fat of rams. Now you know David, David knew very well what had happened with Saul, right? Because the kingdom had been torn from Saul and handed to David. So he understood this, right? He understood that Saul was good at bringing sacrifices. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that Saul wouldn't obey God, his explicit instructions, and the kingdom was torn from Saul. So what does David say? Ah, my ears you've opened, Lord. 
I saw what happened to Saul. You've opened my ears to hear this correctly. Now I get it. Now I get it. God wants servants who will listen to his word and then come to the master and say, I'm, I'm your servant. What do you want me to do? Not just pay lip service to him through, you know, oh, I'll, just an- I'll just another bull or another goat or more fat from the ram. That, that'll pacify God. No, that's not what the Lord wants. And we should pay close attention to this in terms of how we worship under the new covenant. In church life, Here's the phrase that we use. We say, we want to bring God an offering of praise. Right? We say that. We're going to bring God our offering of praise. And that is wonderful unless it's just lip service. Unless it's just like another dead animal. But we have no intention in our hearts of obeying God. We have no delight in his will at all, but I'm going to sing the song as if that is somehow, I don't know, fooling God? Pacifying God? When he says, no, what I want is a heart that is willing to obey, that delights to do my will. Now, this is where we see an important messianic connection. These verses, 6 through 8, are actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. And this is the connection we have with Christ here, right? The context of the nature of the sacrifice of Christ. A sacrifice that was possible to cleanse us from sin because of the perfect obedience of God the Son. This is how the author of Hebrews presents it to us, right? Catch this now, a perfect obedience and a perfect sacrifice which are credited to your account and my account because of Jesus. Perfect obedience and a perfect sacrifice. What Hebrews 10 does is ultimately reveal that God is ultimately dissatisfied with animal sacrifices. And what he anticipates is the one perfect sacrifice that will be brought by Jesus who always delights in doing the will of the Father. That's the connection. The offering that Jesus brings, according to what Hebrews 9 calls the more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, but the actual tabernacle in the heavenly realms, that God the Son doesn't just bring animal sacrifices there. What does he bring? His perfect obedience and his own blood. And he brings it beyond the veil, and he lays it at the Father's feet, and he says it's finished. One sacrifice for all. That's the connection here, right? The work is finished. But the key to understand with this is that Jesus makes this sacrifice because he delights to do the Father's will. And that's what God wants from us. Not just the blood of the animal. He wants us to delight in doing his will. And so the cool thing is, is you and I have a great advantage over David, don't we? Because we live under the new covenant. We've seen the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises. We've been given the spirit of God to guide us into truth, to show us what is right. And so all the more reason, you guys, because we live in the new covenant, all the more reason to respond rightly when we find ourselves in a pit because we have the spirit of God to help us. What are our options when we're, right now, think about, think about the, the last time or maybe the present time that you were in a set of circumstances that you could not escape from and you felt like you were in that pit. What are your options? Turn to the world and compromise? No. Stay active in asking the Lord for help? Yes. Stay active in remembering how he's been faithful in the past? Yes. Trust in his sovereign hand that he has plans for you in the future? If you'll just walk humbly with him, with a desire to delight in his will? Absolutely. And when God does act, 
when he does act, and he will in his timing, then come here and celebrate his goodness with your brothers and sisters. Declare it in the congregation. And then allow that testimony of his goodness to just spread to everybody else like ripples on a pond so that we can all be built up together. That's what David is talking about. Amen? God will strengthen us over and over and over again if we will simply understand this process that he wants to take us through. And he will strengthen, right now he is strengthening you and I for the next test, for the next battle that we are going to have to fight and wrestle through. Submit to the process. It's good because God is good. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we're, uh, we're amazed at how much you pack into your word, how much beautiful language written in 1000 BC that can then be looked at and applied in the year 2023 AD. So many truths that you have given us about this life that we live on the earth and about your, your love and care for us. Father, help us down here on the earth because sometimes, Lord, it just feels like too much. And every day seems like a struggle and we feel like we're in this miry pit. God, help us to remember that you will not forsake us, you will not abandon us, that, that you love us more than we can know and that you will lift us out and you will come to our aid. And Father, when you do that, will you just give us the strength to testify to your goodness, to sing your praises with all the joy and thankfulness and passion that you deserve as we sing your praises, Lord. Change us and grow us in our love for worshiping you. Thank you right now, God, for even the things that we're going through. Right now, Lord, you are speaking to our hearts. You're, 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 you're strengthening us in this moment for whatever we're dealing with. Help us to receive that well. Help us to trust you. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight and to know that you are with us. Do a work in us this morning and this week, Lord, to strengthen our faith together for your glory and, of course, for our good. In Jesus we pray. Amen.